Well, hello there, and welcome to this Calvary Longview audio message. We're so glad you've chosen to take a moment to discover with us the truth that can be found in the Bible, and we pray that you'll be blessed by what you hear. Today, we have a guest speaker here to share with us an encouraging message about Jesus. We can't wait to get into God's Word, so crack open your Bible, grab your note-taking tools, and we'll get started. I guess this is one of my favorites, if you, you know, if you have favorites in the Bible. And we're going to cover quite a bit. We're going to start out at Galatians chapter 1, at verse 6 and through 9. And then we'll move on to chapter 3 right after that. But let's uh, read together as we look, or look together at Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. Here he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received let him be accursed. So Paul writes this. He announces he has amazement that it's very quickly these people have turned away from the gospel that was presented to them. And he says, from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which he says is not really a gospel at all. And they're turning to it. They were turning away from the one who had called them. They were turning away from the grace of Christ. And this different gospel was not really a gospel. But it was brought to the Galatians, as Paul says, by those who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So there were those who had bad motives who were coming into the areas in Galatia. Paul had a great concern for the purity of the gospel, and he makes that plain by saying that anybody who perverts the gospel that he gave, let them be damned, let them be accursed. And he went so far to say that even if I come back to you, and I tell you a different gospel than I gave you the first time, then may I even be accursed because what I gave you was true. And if I change that, then let me be accursed. And did anybody pick up on the thing? Even if an angel from, comes from heaven and gives you a different gospel, let them be accursed. Paul's going to go, we're going to move from there and we're just going to glaze over chapter 2 with just this uh, information here that Paul spends a bit of time in chapter 2 trying to reassert his authority as an apostle. So evidently, these false teachers were coming in, were somehow able to undermine Paul's authority and his recognition as an apostle. And uh, sometimes Paul called these people Judaizers in this particular situation because the Judaizers, as he called them, they advocated it to really be saved and to live a life that is acceptable to God the Christians needed to keep the law. And they had special emphasis placed on the rite of circumcision. Plus, these people said that the uh, Christian Gentiles needed to keep special days and weeks and seasons and special diets. And that is not the gospel that Paul had delivered. That was a different gospel, which Paul says is not really a gospel at all. That's not good news. 
So Paul is writing to the Galatians not out of anger. I think there's some frustration there, obviously. But it's out of his love for them, his love for Christ, his love for the, the pure gospel, and his great desire that the gospel would always be kept pure. This is not the first time Paul has run into this problem. A few years earlier in Antioch, when he was in Antioch, there were some folks that came down from Jerusalem and said they'd been sent down there. And they came to tell the Christians in Antioch that they all needed to become Jews. They needed to get circumcised and they needed to keep the law. So Paul uh, didn't want to have any of that, so he put together a delegation and they traveled to Jerusalem to have the discussion there with the elders and the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. And he wanted to make sure that they were all saying the same message, saying the same gospel. And that's recorded in uh, chapter 15 of Acts, if you were to look at that. I'm going to see that sometime in more detail. But we do see that Paul, that I'm quoting here of Acts 15.5. Paul writes there, or excuse me, actually Luke was writing this. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here we see that there were well-meaning Christians in that group in Jerusalem who were trying to make Jews out of the Gentiles. They were thinking of Christianity as an extension or continuation of Judaism. So they had right motives, but uh, these well-meaning believers did not have a clear understanding about the true gospel message. But not everybody who, but not all of those Jews who wanted Gentiles to come under the law were well-meaning. These particular folks were well-meaning at this meeting. But in Galatians, which is in the book we're now, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote this, And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came by stealth to spy out the liberty we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. So these were not misguided brethren, well-intended brethren. These folks that came in were actually false brethren, wolves in sheep's clothing, and they had an agenda. And Paul says that agenda was to take captive those who were actually free in Christ, wanted to take away their freedom in Christ. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul goes on to say that the Judaizers actually wanted to make disciples for themselves. They wanted people to follow after them. So that was their agenda. Anyway, back to the delegation in Jerusalem, in that famous meeting, when Paul met and the group he took from Antioch got together with the apostles there and the elders and the other leaders, Paul had some time to explain to them all the mighty works that God had been doing through him and his entourage among the Gentiles. And as a result of that meeting, the group in Jerusalem wrote a letter for Paul to take back to all the churches, starting in Antioch. And in that letter, they declared that they had never sent anybody from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell the Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised or that they had to keep the law. But in Acts 15, 28 through 9, they did send this statement with Paul. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. 
Tonight we're going to look a little bit into chapter 3 of Galatians, where that is our background. So, in chapter 2, Paul had refreshed their minds about the genuineness of his apostleship. And he's going to begin chapter 3 with some questions. So, question number 1, we find in Galatians 3, verse 1. And Paul writes this. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. So Paul addresses the Galatian Christians as being foolish. He doesn't call them stupid or unintelligent, but they're unwise. He likens their conditions as to somebody as if they had come under some kind of evil spell. He says they've been bewitched. He wants to know who's influenced them so much that they are no longer obeying the truth. The gospel that Paul delivered, they are not obeying it now. Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, and all that his crucifixion meant, had been clearly conveyed to them, and they had believed it. But now they were turning from that clear portrayal of the gospel, and they were embracing what Paul would call a perversion of that gospel. So the next question he asks is in verse 2. He says, this, I, me, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? So Paul is asking a very simple but very profound question. They had received the Holy Spirit, and he wants them to realize that they received the Holy Spirit through faith and not by any works of the law. It was totally by faith that they had received the Spirit. So he basically has the answer within the question. Questions 3 and 4, exactly in verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? So they've been saved through the Spirit, and now they have a walk, as we all have. We are all saved by the Spirit of God, and we all have a walk that we're now to walk. And Paul here is calling that being made perfect by the flesh. So Paul still expresses amazement here. The Galatians had begun in the Spirit. They had received the Spirit through faith, faith in the gospel presented to them. There were no works involved in receiving the Spirit, only faith. And since Paul had previously presented a pure gospel to them, I'm certain that he had taught them that their Christian walk should continue in the same manner as the way it had begun. It began in the Spirit, should continue in the Spirit. But now the Galatians were mistakenly trying to achieve perfection through their own efforts. Being born again is a spiritual work. Justification is by faith and not by works. I was talking to somebody before we came to church tonight to make sure we understand what justification is. Sometimes we use words that we don't necessarily understand. But justification is kind of like a legal term. It's like uh, going before the judge and having your case thrown out. You're being cleared of guilt. And we're justified before God, the righteous judge, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how we're justified. That's how we can stand before God as justified or not guilty. So the perfecting process is also by faith as we walk by the Spirit and not in the flesh. And this we often call the sanctification process. And that's the process as we live our Christian life that the goal is, and hopefully we're attaining to it, is that we are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. 
That should be the testimony of our walk after being saved, that in many ways we're becoming more like Christ. Though the Galatians were under the influence of those who wanted to Judaize them, but those who live by the law or those who live by works are not walking in the Spirit, they're walking in the flesh. So question number five in verse four, Paul says, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So this would imply that the Galatians had been suffering in some way, probably some persecution because they were Christians. And at that time, in that area, the Christians would suffer persecution not only from the government, but really heavily from the Jews in the area. And the Jews, at that time in history anyway, did not suffer a whole lot of persecution from the Romans at that particular time that Paul is writing this, because their religion was a recognized religion, an authorized religion, and Christianity was not an authorized religion. But as a result of the Christians in Galatia being swayed by this not a real gospel and coming back under Judaism, it actually was relieving some of the persecution they were facing because now they were being looked at as a sect or a branch of Judaism. So the Jews wouldn't persecute them so much and the government would leave them alone because now they were just, just another branch of a recognized religion. Question number six, verse five. Paul asks, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So Paul again is asking a rhetorical question with the answer supplied within the question. And that's what rhetorical means, in case you're wondering. So I asked you a question, but the answer is right there. So Paul questions Galatians, does he who supplies the Holy Spirit and works miracles among them, does he do it because they follow the works of the law? Or does he give the Spirit and work miracles because of faith? And so since it's a rhetorical question, the very obvious answer is that the Spirit is given because of hearing and responding in faith. The works of the law did not and do not cause the Spirit to be given nor are miracles worked among them by works of the law. Being under the law and doing the works of the law actually will stifle the work of the Holy Spirit and will curb the working of miracles. So adding the law or works or rituals to the gospel message is very effective. It's very effective in negating the power of the Holy Spirit. The perverted gospel makes it extremely difficult for anyone to really come to salvation, and it makes it difficult for those who actually receive the Holy Spirit to walk the walk and live in the freedom Christ died to give us. Works or legalism can add followers, but they do not add disciples. Say that again, works or legalism can add followers, but they do not add disciples. The sad thing can be that works often result in followers of a perverted gospel to be deceived into thinking they are saved when they are not. And I think anybody's paying attention, you can see that amongst us today in various cults. So continuing in Galatians 3, have you guys follow along here, starting at verse 6. So 
just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, or blessed along with believing Abraham. So Paul refers to Abraham, and Paul, or excuse me, Abraham has been called the father of faith. There's three really good reasons here that Paul would interject or reference Abraham. Abraham obviously was the father of the Jewish nation. Abraham is the clearest example of justification in the Old Testament, justification by faith, that is. And most likely, the Judaizers were pointing back to Abraham in connection with circumcision, because that's where it began. Now, the Judaizers, those who would come among them, would claim to be the sons of Abraham. But Paul says that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. They are spiritual sons, even though they're not actually Jews or bloodline of Abraham. And Jesus himself addressed this issue in chapter 8 of John when he was confronted with a bunch of Jewish leaders who didn't believe in him. They were not believing what he said, and in fact, they wanted to kill him. And they had made the claim that Abraham is our father. And Jesus acknowledged that, yes, you are descendants of Abraham, but he went on to say that Abraham is not your father. He said, Abraham believed those who came with the word of God, and you do not believe the one who's standing here bringing you the word of God. And not only do you not believe me, you want to kill me. And Abraham would have never done those things. So Jesus told them that they did the deeds of their father. So now they switch from Abraham being their father and says, we only have one father. God is our father. And Jesus said, no. He said, if God was your father, you would actually believe me and you would actually love me. But he says, the devil is your father. So we see that it's more critical to be a spiritual son of Abraham than to be a descendant of Abraham. So in verse 9, we just read there that, so then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham or along with believing Abraham. So there's a blessing for those who are of faith. But we'll contrast that with verse 10, if you follow there in your Bible. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 27, 26. So it says there that those who are under the law and do not keep the whole law are cursed, proving that all who are under the law are under a curse because everyone has fallen short of the law's standards. So therefore, under the law is to be under a curse. But Paul continues here in verse 11. He says, but, excuse me, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And that's a quote out of the Old Testament. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. So to try to be under the law, you try to live by the law, and that is not faith, that is works of the flesh. So Paul reiterates that it's faith that justifies us and not the law. Paul continues in verse 13. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Jesus became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. As a result, the blessing of Abraham has come upon the Gentiles. The blessing is in Christ Jesus, and through faith in him and his work on the cross, we receive the promise of the Spirit. Notice that it is through faith that we receive the Spirit, not through the law. Continuing with verse 15 of chapter 3, Paul writes, Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promises was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So we see a long section here where Paul is talking about covenants. And first he talks about man covenants, man between man, that a covenant is made and there'd be a specific conditions put on it, maybe a specific time that it would be in effect. And if it's something like a last will and testament, then obviously the covenant wouldn't even kick in until somebody died. So there's those types of covenants. And he said that those are made, and once they've been established, nobody annuls them. In other words, it's still good until it's fulfilled. And he's going to liken that to the promise, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God himself made the covenant, and nobody else was involved really in the covenant. He made it. Didn't even make a condition on it. God said, I will do it. So he speaks of the covenant of promise made to Abraham and his seed, who is Christ. Paul says that the law, given 430 years later, did not annul the original covenant with Abraham. So that promise still stood. The law was given because of transgressions. So it's another covenant, so to speak, that came into being because of the transgressions of mankind. And it was appointed through angels mediating through the man Moses. But there's no mediator involved in the covenant promise God made to Abraham. He made it himself. There was no mediator. There was no go-between. It was a unilateral covenant, and its fulfillment depended entirely on the one who established it, God and God alone. Can't get a better covenant than that. <laughs> Paul makes it clear that the inheritance is of the promise and not of the law. The law was added until the coming of the seed of the promise, Christ. So continuing in our reading there in verse 21, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, true righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law certainly has a purpose. But Paul does say that if there could have been a law written that would have given us life, then Jesus wouldn't even have had to come. He would not have had to die on the cross. But no law could do that. But the law is not against the promises of God. It was added after the promise. And the promise was made to Abraham. So that was the original promise. So that men would realize, men needed to realize their desperate state, the state that they're in, that we're all in. <laughs> that desperate state also showed them that they needed to be looking forward to that promise. There should have been anxiety of any of those who recognized that, that they would be looking forward to the one who was to come, that they would be looking forward to the Messiah. There's no law that can bring life or righteousness. Only the seed of the promise, Christ Jesus, can bring life and bring righteousness. So the law definitely has a purpose. Before Christ, the law acted as a guard and as a tutor. In a sense, it was kind of like a prison guard. It may not be the best analogy, but it's kind of like a prison guard to keep man in custody until faith in Jesus Christ was revealed. The law was like a tutor in the fact that it instructed and corrected the Israelites in God's ways until Christ was revealed. We are no longer under the tutor if we are in Christ. Now remember, the Israelites were given the law. It was not given to the general world population. But the Israelites failed miserably in the fact that they were supposed to make this known to the Gentile nations around them and actually convert them instead of it happening the other way around. As we all know, and as Pastor Al has been showing us so much in Jeremiah on, on Wednesday nights, that uh, the people had gone the way of the people that they had displaced out of the land. Israel went first, Judah followed a hundred and some years later that they were taken out of the land of promise because they became exactly like the people that they were kicking out of the land. So Paul writes in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So justification by faith in Christ Jesus is open to all. There's no restrictions according to racial, social, or gender to becoming a child of God. So all can come to Christ for his mercy and can equally become his heirs and his recipients of those eternal promises. And notice that if you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'm just thinking how much fun it would be if we all stood up and sang Father Abraham, but we won't unless Gabe feels inclined to do that when he comes back up. How many of you know that nice Sunday school song? It's a great song, right? Especially when you don't have much energy, you need to get perked up a little bit. I remember in the old old building downtown before we moved over here, 
that uh, I was teaching to preschoolers one day, one Sunday morning, and that Sunday school room was right against the back wall of the sanctuary. And uh, must have had about 15, 16 kids in there that morning. And uh, I got them singing Father Abraham, and we were having a great time. And pretty soon, two ushers came and knocked on the door and told us to hold it down. So <laughs> we were really having a good time. I don't know what they were doing in the sanctuary, but we were having a great time. So. So let's look at a scripture, uh, one out of chapter 4 of Galatians. That would be chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. I think that was going to be on the overhead. And Paul writes here, continues to write, But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. So Paul still got questions for him as he comes over here, and he's still amazed by the things. It's like, why would you want to put yourself back into bondage? You know, you were free in Christ, and you want to be in bondage. Now, if you think about it, the Galatians, most of them that Paul's writing to, were Gentile Christians. There obviously were Jewish Christians within the church in Galatia. But for the, for the most part, they were Gentiles, so they had never really been under the bondage of the Jewish law. They, may have, they were definitely in bondage to Satan and maybe, um, you know, whatever cultic practices they were in before. But uh, they had never been in a bondage under law. So it might appeal to them as, as a good thing. But uh, Paul is telling them, this is bondage. This is not the freedom in Christ that I told you about. But he says that you have observed days and months and seasons and years so not only were the Galatians being troubled by circumcision and the law of Moses, they were also attempting to please God by observing special days and months and seasons and years. And these would have included things like Sabbath days, special Sabbath days, the feasts, and possibly, who knows, maybe they even added in some other special days and occasions that they thought of as necessary to please God. So Paul is looking at what they're doing and it's like they are thinking they have to do these things. They have to do these things to please God. They may even think they have to do these things to maintain their salvation, certainly thinking that they were doing these things, as Paul pointed out earlier, being perfected. In other words, their walk, their Christian walk, would demand they do these things. So Paul is very concerned about the fact that they think they have to do these things. But Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the Jewish law. He fulfilled the rituals, fulfilled all the feasts, fulfilled all the sacrifices. All of these things, we're told in Scripture, were pointing toward Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us that the law and all it included was a shadow of that which was to come. And there's no longer need for sacrifices or special days and that we're no longer under the law given at Mount Sinai. And there's also, outside of the book of Hebrews, this is confirmed in Colossians chapter 2, and if we were looking at Galatians 4, we would find more evidence of that fact. But the author of Hebrews goes to great length to show that Christianity is the true successor to Judaism. It's not an extension of Judaism. 
It's the successor for Judaism. Judaism was passing away, and Christianity was replacing it. So Galatians 5, see, we're really making progress. We're clear up in Galatians 5. And I'm not going to go much into Galatians 5, but there's a few scriptures I want to point out. Uh, if you were to read Galatians 5, you'd find out that Paul has some very stor- uh, excuse me, stern warnings as a result of trying to be justified through the law. So that would be some good reading on your part. But uh, I do want to touch briefly on some parts of chapter 5 because it seems necessary to what we're doing tonight. So Galatians 5.1, I think it needs to be on the overhead, but you can follow along your Bible too. Paul writes, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Paul wants them to stand fast in the liberty that Christ has made us free. Jesus said, Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He wants us to stay free. He does not want us entangling ourselves again with a yoke of bondage. So this is something that, even though they had false teachers coming in, they were allowing themselves to be put into bondage. And Paul wants to remind them, stand fast in the liberty that Christ gave you. Don't put yourself into bondage. Galatians 5.4, he says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I don't know about you guys, but I want all the grace I can get. <laughs> you know, and Paul writes his letters, he's always <clears throat> greeting them and closing them with grace to you and peace, grace and peace and grace and peace. And there is no peace without grace when it comes to our relationship with God. We have to have the grace. It says that you are attempted to be justified by the law. <clears throat> so, in other words, they were doing works, trying to either earn their salvation or doing works trying to keep their salvation or trying to do works to make themselves more pleasing to God or uh, like I'm the better Christian because I keep these rules better than you do, that type of thing. But he says that they have actually fallen from grace. To me, that's not a good place to be. You've fallen from grace. Galatians 5, 7, and 8. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, ask this question. So who hindered you from following the truth? I gave you the truth. I left here. You were doing good. (laughs) You're not doing so good now because you've allowed yourself to be uh, fooled and hoodwinked by these people who have come in telling you you have to do some things different. They've given you a different story than what I gave you, and you're listening to that story. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, there's a warning for us. When, we, when things creep into the church that are not right, that they're part of another gospel, which is not really a real gospel, those things can actually permeate through the church. Yeast. So a little leaven, yeast, will leaven the whole lump. That's why we put it in bread, right? We want the whole thing to rise. Well, there's a good use for it, leaven at times, but not in the church. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He also goes on to say that we obey the whole law by loving each other. It says we've been called to liberty. 
been called to liberty. I hope we all know that and realize that, that if we sense we're in bondage, it may be because we have put ourselves there or we've listened to somebody who's put us there, but the gospel sets us free and we've been called to that. But Paul also warns us here, he says, do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's another place Paul writes that all things for me are lawful, but not all things are expedient. In other words, there's a lot of things we could do, but a lot of those things we shouldn't do because there's just no good value in doing those things. And a lot of times the things that maybe that we'd have the freedom to do may actually lead us into more fleshly activities. In Galatians 5, 16 through 18, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That's one of my favorite scriptures. It's one that I have to remind myself over and over again. Walk in the Spirit, and I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I apply that one personally quite often. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. So there's a, uh, if we walk in the spirit, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we're led by the spirit, we're not even really concerned about what the laws are, right? The spirit will trump laws. But if we start walking in the law, guess what? We're walking in flesh. Because the law is, I do this, I do this, I do this, or I don't do that, I don't do that. That's my flesh being involved and not necessarily walking after the Spirit. And in Colossians 2, I know this is a little change here. Paul's going to ask a question in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. So this scripture shows us that Rules and regulations are often added trying to curb the flesh. And Paul's saying they're not effective. Has a semblance of looking religious. It may look good, but he says it's of no value. And he wants to know, if you died from Christ to these basic principles, why do you subject yourself to these things? We're not called to subject ourselves to these things. He says these things look like they have an appearance of wisdom. He calls them self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but they are of no value in our fight against the flesh. So as we saw in Galatians 5, we see it here that we do not put to death the deeds of the flesh by rules and regulations. We only put to death the deeds of the flesh by walking in the Spirit. So there's a tendency to want to add something. Jesus plus something else. And we've all heard Pastor Al say this many times in the pulpit, that it's Jesus and nothing else, not Jesus plus, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. Paul wanted the Galatians to go back to that which he had delivered them to earlier. 
go back to the faith in the work of Christ and relying upon the Holy Spirit. He didn't want them to let themselves be put in bondage by having to follow rules and regulations. Jewish laws and customs or having to observe, having to observe special days and seasons, uh, whether they ate or whether they didn't eat, these types of things if they were doing them for um, religious reasons. He said we don't need to be doing that. And we see that since Paul's writing way back then, this tendency has been in the church since the very early days of Christianity. These things are still with us today. So it's to our benefit that Paul wrote to the Galatians. So in a sense, we could thank the Galatians for having their problems and Paul could write about them so that we have that information available to us today on how to counteract some of these things that we might be tempted to do or tempted to impose upon other people. So there were then, and there are now, those who would try to put us in bondage by adding to the gospel. And Paul calls that a perversion of the gospel. I don't think we want a perverted gospel. Yet there are works that we are to do, works we're called to do. The, work, the Bible tells us that uh, there were works prepared for us individually, before we were even saved, God had prepared works for us to do, and He wants us to do those works. But guess what? Those works are not rules and regulations. Those works are the things that, under the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit, we find those things and we do them with the Holy Spirit leading us and the Holy Spirit empowering us. We could even be fleshly and trying to do good works, but there are works God wants us to do. We are not free to sin. Paul pointed that out already. But here's the good news. We are free to not sin. So we're not free to sin, but we're free to not sin. We are free to hear God's voice, and we're free to let Him direct our paths. That is true freedom. God has begun a good work in all who have believed in Him and in all who have been born again. And God is faithful to complete that work, that good work. But may we not hinder Him by surrendering our freedom. If we put ourselves in bondage, we hinder the good work that Christ is trying to do in us because He wants us to walk in the Spirit. We're told that over and over again in the New Testament, that we're to walk in the Spirit. So when we get out of the Spirit and we try to do things, even good things, with our flesh, we are hindering the work that Christ is actually trying to do in us. So let us not hinder ourselves by putting ourselves in bondage. And let us not hinder other people. We might even hinder them coming to Christ if we make the way too hard or by adding something other than faith in Christ. Let's not put other people in bondage by adding law or works to them after they have come to know Christ. We want people to be able to come to Christ through faith. We want them to be able to live their Christian walk by continuing in faith and relying on the Holy Spirit. And that's something for us, for us to encourage each other to love and to walk in the Spirit. So the true gospel, as we see, has been under attack since the very beginning of the gospel. There are people who want to subvert it and pervert it. The book of John, 2 John chapter one, John wrote this. 
He said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So we even have a warning in the scripture about how we deal with people who would be bringing false doctrine, if we are definitely know ahead of time that they're bringing false doctrine. There's a warning there. So that we saw there that there was a, uh, it was a big deal when John wrote this about people who were trying to, to deny that Christ himself was actually truly flesh. It was kind of a, I don't know why they figured it out, but it was, they even spiritualized his body that they could see and that uh, he didn't really die there's even groups around today that still say that, that, that Jesus didn't really die. There's also groups that say that he died and God took his body to heaven and then gave him a new body. There's all kinds of weird things about the gospel. There's people that even, this is a really popular day, deny that Jesus is God. I mean, there's, if you think a little bit, you can think of groups that have done that. They still want to come around and knock on your door and tell you they have good news Jesus is not God. That's basically the good news. And you can work your way into, well, you can't even work your way into heaven anymore with that group because that number got filled up back into 30s with 144,000. But now you can have a place on the new earth if you will join them. People have denied the resurrection from the dead. And we can find in the scriptures, as Al will point out as we go through uh, Timothy, that there was a guy who said the resurrection of the dead had already come. And I was doing some research the other day, and uh, there's a, it's growing, unfortunately. There's a group of Christians <laughs> that says the resurrection has already taken place. All the prophecies in the Bible have already happened. It's all done. We're actually basking in the millennial reign right now. And I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, so there's all kinds of weird things that have come against the gospel. There are those obviously still tell us that there are certain rules and regulations you have to follow to actually be saved or you have to follow to have a proper Christian walk. There are those groups around us today. So there's all kinds of people want to add things to faith in Christ. And as you may not be aware or more aware, there's groups around us that sound like us. They use the same words like Heavenly Father, Son of God, Holy Spirit. And when you look into it, they don't mean anything like what the Bible tells us. So we have to be aware of these things. So what do we see? I kind of went this route a little bit tonight because I have seen some attacks against, and probably all have, and it's frustrating to see the attacks against true faith, especially when I see it in some of the well-known Christian groups around the world that have really done some strange things <laughs> with the gospel. But if we're not aware of these things and look out for these things, we might be get suckered in like the Galatians did. And maybe, and I know this for a fact, that 
there are people in our congregation who were saved in groups that were very legalistic. But fortunately, God moved them out of those and they found a place of freedom in Christ. So we have some of those people in our midst today. Whether they still suffer for some of the legalism that they were bound with when they're in that, maybe. It may take a while to get over some of those things that were impressed upon you that you have to do this, you have to do that. God will love you more if you do these things or don't do certain things. And sometimes we have a tendency that if we have sinned or drifted away a little bit, it's very easy for us to get legalistic and think I've got to do certain things to win my favor back with God. What does John tell us to do? He says, confess your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive those sins. So that's our should be our response and our way back, if that's the right term, our way back to our right relationship with the Lord is through repentance and confession. Not because I have to go do a certain amount of deeds. I don't know. I, I, was, I suspect probably most Christians are affected that way sometimes. When they've done something they know it wasn't right, they feel like they're guilty, i got to do something. And I think that's why it was so easy for the church to ever have historically, you got to do so many Hail Marys or so much penance or that type of thing. Hey, it makes, in some ways, it's like, that makes it so easy. But it really doesn't make it easy, but it's taking our freedoms away. I know of, uh, I know some in our midst there were even in cults before God took them out of a cult and brought them here. And they will say that some of those things still bothered them. They were not saved in the cult. Don't get me wrong there. <laughs> there are some people who were saved in legalistic denominations, and God set them free of that so that they could enjoy the freedom in Christ. But you're not saved in a cult. They had to be taken out of the cult to be saved, to thank God for those people coming out. Maybe none of us have any of these issues I've talked about tonight that we're not bound by any legalism. But I do suspect that sometimes we trip ourselves up a little bit with legalism when we haven't been quite right. And we're trying to find our way back to being right. Um, but you know, you have family and you have friends. You have co-workers. People you meet. You have people that come to your front door. There's a lot of these people that are bound in these ways that we're talking about tonight. I don't know what the answer is for them necessarily, but you will meet these people who think that you have to do certain things. You have to earn your salvation or you have to earn your sanctification or you have to do certain things to actually remain close to God. So we should all be aware of that. And you may have family and friends already that you're thinking about. You know, I mentioned a few things here that, like food, okay, there are groups that are very insistent that you don't eat certain things or you have to eat certain things. But I don't want anybody to be confused with the people who voluntarily have a diet that they have put themselves on because they like that diet or for whatever reason they don't want to eat certain things. But the Word goes on to make it very clear. It goes on to make it very clear that's between that person and the Lord. It should never become anything between them and their brothers in Christ. That it's not a rule. You would never make that rule for anybody else to say, you guys have to eat this way. And they shouldn't even make it a rule for themselves to say that I have to eat this way. Choice, that's great. 
But if we're not careful when we make it, I have to do this, it's almost like we're saying, to be the better Christian, I have to do certain things. And believe me, diet does not make you a better Christian one way or the other. You might be a healthier one, but you're not necessarily a better one. So when we talk about something like diet, um, you know, do your diet, but don't try to put anybody else down for their diet. And sometimes there we have people that like to celebrate a, uh, a, a Jewish holiday or something. I think that could be fine, but you never want to get to the point where you would tell anybody else, you have to do this. Or even get themselves to the point where they say, I have to do this. That's adding rules and regulations and legalism to yourself. Remember, quite a few years ago in Klatskadai, we did a, a Seder meal at our home. We had like 50 people the first time we did it. Very, very educational. But it was not something we ever told anybody, you have to do this. And it was not something we felt we had to do. But the next year, we actually uh, expanded it and invited the community at large. And we packed out the American Legion Hall in Klatskanite. People come in to experience the Seder meal. It was very educational. So those types of things you can do if you want to. If you want to experience a feast, go ahead to gain the understanding of what's behind that and to see its connection to Christ, if you can see Christ in it. But it should never ever, any of these things should never ever become it's something I have to do or that I would put off on somebody else to do. But there, we have a lot of freedom in Christ to do a lot of things. There's some things like, I personally don't want to do anymore. I don't want to support Hollywood anymore. That's your choice. If you want to support Hollywood, shame on you. I mean, uh, that's up to you. That, uh, <laughs> But that would not be a rule, I would say, don't go to movies anymore. That's a choice. Again, you have that freedom in Christ. It's just something I choose I don't want to do. But I don't even make that a legal thing to myself and saying I can't. It's just that I don't want to. And there may be things in your life that you've chosen not to do, or things you've chosen to do. But please don't make that a legalistic thing in your life that that's somehow going to make you a better Christian. That's going to make you closer to God. And certainly don't pass it on as a rule to somebody else or look down on somebody else because they do that particular thing. And one of those would be if you drink wine or beer, I guess, you know, you'd have to do that in moderation. I mean, that's obviously the scripture. Drunkenness is against scripture. Drinking wine is not. I mean, uh, the Bible talks a lot about it. But again, that's the thing you have to be careful about. Careful who you do it with, where you do it. Um, there's definitely dangers to some of the things we do because they can lead people astray. If you see me walking into an R-rated movie or something, or I see you walking in there, I may have a tendency, whether I want to or not, to think badly of you, or you may have a tendency to think badly of me. Or I may stumble you in some other way thinking it's okay for you to go see certain things. Or if you see me, got my shopping cart full at Winco of... Wine bottles, you know, I might stumble you. But it's just those things that we have to think about. But we don't want them to be rules and regulations. We don't want to take a, lose our freedom we have in Christ. Sure, there are things we do, I won't say that make us closer to the Lord, but we do things sometimes and that the result is we can feel a little separation from the Lord. We expose ourselves to certain types of entertainment, it's pretty easy for some of that entertainment to actually make you feel like there's just not something quite right now between me and the Lord. Because 
there's not quite the cleanness that you had before, before you did what you just did. Even though you might be hard-pressed to say that was sinful, it was one of those things that Paul talked about. It was not profitable. So that's what it comes down again about walking in the Spirit. You know, is the Holy Spirit leading you to do what you're doing? And I don't do this all the time. I don't do it nearly enough. But I've often thought, probably a lot of you, most of the time, pray before you eat. That just seems to be a given within the Christian circle is to pray before you eat. Restaurants, at home, doesn't matter where you are. When's the last time you prayed before you turned on the TV? When's the last time you prayed before you went to the movie? God bless this movie. We do those things. Do, are we seeking direction in what we're doing? It's a good question I asked you, not to condemn you, but to ask you, because we want, I hope, we all want to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And the more we seek God's direction in what we're doing, the more we're going to walk in the Spirit. And I'm preaching to me just as much as I am to anybody else. I'm trying to encourage you just as much as I encourage myself. I want us all to have a successful journey in Jesus Christ. Gabe, yeah, come back up and lead us in some worship. If anybody wants some prayer, I'll be up here. John, if you'll come up, that would be great. We'll just be available. We hope you've enjoyed spending this time in God's Word, and our prayer is that you'll take it with you and apply it to your life. If you'd like to learn more about Calvary Longview, visit our website at cclongview.com. While you're there, you can find more teachings, request prayer, or even find out how you can get involved with what God is doing in our city. We hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you back here next time. And remember, Jesus loves you, and so do we.